This is Lost or Found with Dr. Michelle Choi. The contents of this podcast and website are for informational purposes only and are not a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, and or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you have regarding a medical condition and before undertaking any diet, dietary supplement, exercise, or other health program. Hello, folks. Welcome to Lost or Found. We have an interesting conversation today as I'll be speaking with Robert Foster, who is a director of NorCal Flag Football, which is a youth flag football league, and today he will share with us his past and what youth sports has meant to him. Adverse childhood experiences, also known as ACEs, are potentially traumatic events that occur in childhood from 0 to 17 years old. It originated with a groundbreaking and very large public health study done by the CDC in conjunction with Kaiser Permanente, and the original ACEs study was published in 1998, with 70 subsequent studies since that time. This study showed that childhood trauma leads to adult onset of chronic diseases, depression, and other mental illness. There are 10 types of childhood trauma measured in the original ACE study, and they include personal history of physical abuse, verbal abuse, sexual abuse, physical neglect, and emotional neglect. And the last five are those that are related to the family, which include family members with alcoholism, domestic violence in the family, someone in jail, a member with mental illness, and the disappearance of a parent either from death, divorce, or abandonment. Each of these childhood traumas counts as one. According to the CDC, ACEs are common. About 61% of adults surveyed across 25 states reported that they had experienced at least one type of ACE, and nearly one in six reported that they had experienced four or more types of ACEs. Preventing ACEs could potentially reduce a large number of health conditions. For example, Up to 1.9 million cases of heart disease and 21 million cases of depression could have been potentially avoided by preventing ACEs. Yes, you heard right. These childhood traumas that the majority of us carry can harm us and can literally cause problems well into our adulthood if we don't address it. And some children could be at greater risk than others. And what if that child is biologically more vulnerable to toxic stress? An ACEs score of 1 could be just as bad as another child's score of 4 or 5. And according to the ACEs Too High website, subsequent to the ACE study, other ACE surveys have expanded the types of ACEs to include racism, gender discrimination, witnessing a sibling being abused, witnessing violence outside the home, witnessing a father being abused by a mother, being bullied by a peer or adult, involvement with the foster care system, living in a war zone, living in an unsafe neighborhood, losing a family member to deportation. Because of these studies, it's now known that adverse childhood experiences can harm children's developing brains and affect how they respond to stress and even damage their immune systems so badly that the effects show up many years later, causing lasting negative effects on health and well-being. I know, right? It sounds really bad. ACEs cause much of our burden of chronic disease, 
cause most mental illnesses are linked with substance misuse and are at the root of most violence. According to the CDC, adverse childhood experiences can increase a wide range of chronic diseases and leading causes of death such as cancer, diabetes, heart disease, and suicide. And the really sad thing is, if ACEs are at the root of many of society's problems, it also doesn't have to happen, right? Adverse childhood experiences are preventable. And if ACEs don't happen, perhaps all children can have a chance at a beautiful life that should be theirs to live. It's known that toxic stress caused by ACEs damages the functions and structure of children's developing brains. ACEs are toxic stress. While sometimes we need some stress to react in a life-saving manner, like getting the hell away from a mountain lion in order to live, toxic stress is when that stress doesn't go away. And according to Dr. Rankin in her book, Mind Over Medicine, she describes that it's in the relaxed state when the stress hormones drop that the body can use its energy to heal itself. But if a child knows what it feels like to be beaten by his parent, or if he lives in constant fear, knowing that his dad could erupt at any moment and beat his mom to a pulp. That child is living in a state where his stress hormones are always at a high level. According to the ACEs Too High website, when children are overloaded with stress hormones, they're in flight, fright, or freeze mode. They can't learn in school. They often have difficulty trusting adults or developing healthy relationships with peers, i.e. the loners. To relieve the anxiety, depression, guilt, shame, or inability to focus, they turn to easily available biochemical solutions, nicotine, alcohol, marijuana, methamphetamine, or activities in which they can escape their problems, high-risk sports, proliferation of sex partners, and work or overachievement. Also, we know that toxic stress can be passed down generations in a family. But there is hope. And as the ACEs Too High website also states, fortunately, brains and lives are somewhat plastic. Resilience research shows that the appropriate integration of resilience factors, such as asking for help, developing trusting relationships, forming a positive attitude, listening to feelings, can help people improve their lives. You don't have to live the past that tormented you then and continues to torment you. It can literally make us sick and kill us if we don't acknowledge what has hurt us deeply. And lastly, as this vast and extensive public health study indicates, you are not alone. We are not alone. May you consider shining a light on what has hurt you so that you can live freely and without regrets. Today, I'll be speaking with Robert Foster, who is the director of NorCal Flag Football, which is a youth flag football league here in Santa Cruz in San Jose, California. I've personally seen what he has done for our local youth, as my son plays on this league and my husband is his coach. And they both love it. We all love it. NorCal Flag Football's mission statement is, Our mission is to promote confidence and motivation in every player by providing a safe and positive sporting environment in which every child succeeds. The joy that emanates from the field is incredible, as these children think and play with each other. Robert Foster and his organization are a beacon of light and hope in our community, but his own past has been difficult. 
And today he talks about his past experiences, how it's shaped him, and his life as we know it today, and how he has chosen to live. Welcome to Lost or Found, Coach Robert. I'm so grateful that you're here with us today and interviewing with me. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Um, yeah, where, where, do I, where do I start? Um, I am um, originally from the San Jose area, um, moved to the Santa Cruz area six years ago. Um, I have two children. One is um, 19. He's a sophomore in college playing soccer at San Jose State. And my youngest son is a sophomore in high school. Um, so I'm kind of on the other end of raising my children, if you will, uh, enjoying um, the, uh, the blessings of working with children every day. So really, my life goal is to just be a light in this world um, and inspire others where that may be, um, you know, a calling um, as I'm inspired by others. So really, I just want to um, not be known for, for my name, but just be known for maybe being a light and leave a legacy of that, something much greater than myself. And I know you had shared your story um, in the uh, Growing Up in Santa Cruz article uh, recently in February 2020. What was your childhood like? Yeah, um, that was that was quite um, quite the article. Um, and it helped me a lot in, in my process of, of going from, from, you know, hurting to healing to helping. Um, but it is, it is my testimony, and it truly is a part of what's woven me into, you know, where I currently am today. Um, my childhood was, was what it was. I was raised by other humans, you know, and my, my parents had me pretty young. Um, they, they actually had me, uh, my mother had me when she was 18. Um, and so like many parents, we learn to, um, parent, um, from our parents. And so, um, being raised with younger parents was, was, was cool in a lot of ways that we could relate. Uh, we're closer in age, but with that being said, there was a lot of trials and tribulations. Um, my father and my mother, um, I was born in San Jose, as I mentioned earlier from the San Jose area. Uh, my mother and father actually chose to move to Texas when I was about six months old, where my dad originally was from. And that didn't last long. That lasted about six months. Um, I came down with pneumonia. My mom was homesick as an only child who was very close to her mother and father. And so my mother and father split up, um, moved back to San Jose. And so I was raised by my grandmother, uh, my grandfather and my mother in the same household. And then fast forward six years, my dad and mom actually um, reconnected and my dad moved back from Texas to now be in my life. So the first five years of my life, my father figure was my grandfather. Um, I didn't have a dad, so I'm sure that in many ways there were some abandonment issues there um, that, that led to some of my adulthood, you know, trials and tribulations. Um, did you feel happy then? I did. I, I felt really happy when, when I was in a safe environment. Uh, my grandmother and grandfather, um, the environment that I was in was very safe, very loving. Um, so I did get a, a, some amazing um, um, blessings in that. When my dad came back, I was excited to get to know my dad, um, not knowing what would be on the other side of issues that he brought, uh, I'm sure, from his childhood. So my mother and father uh, reconnected when I was six. We instantly moved in together as a family, the three of us. And um, that's when I started to um, experience um, 
loss of, of my voice, uh, expression, um, an environment that over time and at times was, um, extremely negative, um, at times violent. Um, there was a, a ton of anger expressed, um, from my dad, uh, to, to us, uh, in that environment. So I began to shut down. Um, was he abusive? My father was abusive. Yeah. I I never myself experienced any physical abuse. Um, fortunately for my story, there was no, no sexual abuse. Um, but I did experience a lot of physical abuse to my mother. Um, you mean your father to your mother? Yeah. My father to my mother. Exactly. So you saw all that. So I saw a lot of that. And so, I began to live a life of um, hypersensitivity, hypervigilance to not um, shake things up, say the wrong thing. Because if my mom would say the wrong thing, that would uh, escalate very quickly. Was he emotionally and verbally abusive to you? You know, he wasn't. I just, I think I was so scared of him um, being so small, being a kid, you know, and him him being so imposing and, and so aggressive um, and violent that I just didn't say anything for out of survival that, you know, I didn't want to be abused. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was kind of held down by what I saw and just towed the line. My dad noticed everything. If something was out of place, um, he would notice it. And so I learned to live in that environment um, and survive in that environment and build life skills and so well, survival skills to get through a lot of that, which I'm grateful for today. Survival skills in that environment. In that environment, yeah, I had to adapt really quickly. So I, I, I went from an environment where there was a lot of love, uh, uh, that was uh, there was clear, uh, healthy boundaries, to an environment where there were very unhealthy boundaries. There was no self-expression. There was no voice. There was no ability to be myself, um, be a kid, mm-hmm. um, and and learn and grow. Um, so I was held down quite a bit. And so that that was kind of my environment, um, living in that from the time I was six until about 13. But in that time, I found some very important uh, ways to escape from my environment. And, and one of those uh, that was crucial to me was being able to be involved in sports. It's something that I can get praise from my father, be accepted by my father, and then also um, be able to express myself away from the house mm-hmm. where I was held down. So like a sp- socially acceptable. Yeah. Yeah. So, so for me, it was the, the, the ability to, um, to connect in community with other children, um, as, as an only child, I was mm-hmm. an only child from the time I was born until my, my brother was born uh, when I was 10. So it was just kind of me. And was it mostly soccer that you played when you were young? Yeah, it was mostly soccer that I played. Um, I just took to it really, really quickly. Um, I never, I did try baseball, but I was so passionate about soccer that it was just something that worked for me. So I pl- ended up playing that year round. And my father supported it. And my father yeah. showed love in ways that I have to look back on. He did the best he could. He was, he, there was love there. Mm-hmm. I just don't think he had the ability to show it in a healthy way many times. How did you feel playing soccer coming from your home and everything? Yeah, yeah, I felt alive. You know, I felt um, I felt free. I was able to make mistakes and uh, not be ridiculed for it or, mm-hmm. um, or um, you know, uh, are scared to make a mistake. You know, mentors um, in 
many different ways they come in our lives are, are so powerful. They allow us to express ourselves. They, they, they are called in many ways to um, facilitate an environment that's, that's encouraging. And so I was in an environment where I was encouraged um, and those mistakes weren't pointed out. And, and so I could grow in that and learn from those. And I love the community of being with others and playing on a team mm-hmm. because I wasn't in an environment that was a team. It was sole survival, really. Um, and so it was nice to be, to be able to start uh, being involved in, in, in team. And, and that's my first experience of being involved in team and teamwork. So it was really awesome. Were some of your mentors then coaches for you then? Yeah, yeah, I think so. Um, I mean, definitely, um, and teachers. You know, I had I when I would be able to go to school would also be a way that I'd be able to escape and excel and 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 mm-hmm. socialize. Um, and there are um, a couple of people uh, in my younger years, particularly uh, coaches and teachers, that were absolutely um, encouraging and and caring and um, uh, showed compassion. They really allowed me to feel as if I had a voice. They they were they were focused on and cared about what I had to say and how I went about things. And so, soccer, uh, sports in general, um, a couple of you know particular teachers that stood out um, were key in um, helping me to get through. Do you think? Times. Do you think any of them had an idea of what you were going through, like at home? You know, back then I had no idea. Um, like you don't realize that was abnormal, right? Yeah, I didn't realize that was abnormal. I, I think now where I'm at is being being a father um, and having experience in coaching um, and also it's just experience in life. I can look back now and absolutely imagine that those people in those positions, teaching, coaching, these mentorship positions, absolutely can identify, maybe not specifically, but and I get an idea of what type of an environment that someone's coming from. So there may have been times where those coaches, when they would let me stay after practice at their house, because obviously, you know, many times they would be coaching their own children, um, invite me to their house, teachers who would give the, go the extra mile, spend a little bit more time with me. Um, I, I, I identify that now as they, they saw that that was something that um, I probably needed and that also I gravitated to to be able to express myself. So absolutely, looking back, they identified that. And I think like to even have such a safe environment or even have some mercy into your life at that moment in time. Right. It's like, it's so beautiful. Yeah. What we could do all do for each other, I think. Absolutely. And I think that it probably set the framework for the importance that, um, the, the, the importance of having those mentors in your life. And then, probably gravitating to that, you know, as, as I got older. So, you know, there was a rough time from six to 13. Um, another major factor in my life and, and something that really um, rocked me hard was that my really, um, my, my father figure and my grandfather, who I was extremely close with, uh, got actually came down with cancer and passed away when I was 10. So it was the first experience in my life of um, deep grief and the only way I knew how to express that was uh, through sports and through excelling in certain areas of school. Um, so, so that was that was quite a, um, a landmark uh, in my life. Looking back as we as we go forward um, and speaking to how grief itself and unresolved grief 
um, really brought me to my knees um, as an adult. But losing my grandfather at 10 was very, very difficult. Um, and watching my mom process that was very, very difficult. Mm-hmm. How did she process it? Well, I mean, in my opinion, not in uh, the most healthy way. There was a, a, a depression that happened. She was an only child, very close to her father. And so I saw her um, cry a lot. And I didn't understand that because I had never lost anything before um, and, and, and in that sense. And then the only other times that she would cry would be when my dad would be physical and during fighting. So I grew up not really knowing how to handle pain or expression of pain and crying. Um, and I wasn't allowed to express myself in many ways so that inevitably I held that in a lot growing up. So even when your granddad died, did you cry? I, I did, but, but I think watching my mother's reaction over time and her really almost lose herself for, for a number of years after that, um, I didn't want to feel like that. I, I didn't want to experience the pain that I saw my mother experiencing. And so I just hid from that and I stuffed it, not knowing that it would rear its, its head um, later in life. Yeah. <laughs> How did it rear its head later in life? Well, my mother and my father finally split up when I was 13. Um, fortunately, my dad um, found another woman and, and left us be. Um, and that's when I then started to have a voice and probably, in, not probably, in some ways started to rebel a little bit mm-hmm. um, because I was held down for so many years in those intricate years of the womb to 12, which are really the foundation and the blueprint for, for much of our lives. Uh, and, and in my opinion, I started to act out, um, getting in trouble in school um, because there was no repercussions at home. What kinds of things would you do in school? Class clown, you know, talking, messing around, um, not paying attention, just being a distraction. Um, my mom, one thing I didn't mention was I learned that the the dichotomy of my mother and father was that he was violent. He did these things, and then mom would let it go the next day. So what I didn't realize until later in life was that I was also being raised by an enabler. And so you could do these things, and then everything is okay the next day. You can do things that are inappropriate, um, that aren't healthy of other people's boundaries and space and not loving, and you can get away with that, and it'll just go away the next day. So I, 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 I had those, the, both of those things. Um, really um, started to mold me in a way that um, I just didn't understand what healthy boundaries were. So I started to act out. My mom, being an enabler, would stuff it under the rug, probably having a lot of guilt herself for um, what I saw, what what she went through, and shame maybe even, Mm -hmm. that I was able to do what I wanted to do. And so I started kind of directing the household by 13 or 14, Mm -hmm. staying out late, you know, what would um, you do when you stayed out late? Uh, I would just be with friends. I mean, I wasn't I wasn't getting involved in at that age <laughs> with any with any um, drugs or anything like that. But I just would be running around with other broken children from probably very broken families as well. All of us with our own stories. But mm-hmm. I obviously gravitated to other people that were broken because I didn't feel I didn't feel um, a place with the families that it looked all good on the surface, if you will. Mm -hmm. Um, So, of course, I gravitated to other broken people. So, yeah, just running around, playing basketball. We'd play sports, you know, nothing outrageous. Um, But I had had more rope 
I didn't have to um, toe the line like I did, which was an unrealistic line to toe when I was younger. Do you think any of your teachers realized why you were acting out? You know, I don't know. I think it gets difficult for teachers when you get to the middle school um, level. Um, I think that they don't have as much time with you in a classroom. Um, I'm sure they noticed it, but their ability to support me a little bit more, I think, wasn't as possible. So I don't Mm -hmm. really even remember very many teachers in those grade levels that were my mentors. Um, I also quit soccer to play um, tackle football at 13. So there was a lot of change going on. Um, Another thing that I didn't mention is by the time, from the time I was in kinder until 12th grade, I attended 10 different schools within a eight miles square radius, moving around different school districts. And then as I got older, um, different factors for high school. But I actually attended 10 schools from the time I was five until 18. So everyone was kind of getting to know you then. Yeah, so I had to really learn to be a chameleon and and really look at others and and to be accepted and liked, um, find ways to do that. Mm -hmm. Because I was always going to a new school, having to meet new friends, it seemed like. And that was difficult. Do you feel like you were wearing that mask of the clown? Yeah, I think I definitely Mm -hmm. would wear the mask that would get me accepted, um, that people would like me or act like they had... um, uh, they were intrigued or accepted me, if you will. Acceptance, mm-hmm. right? Because acceptance is is a big part of our, our our makeup and community is feeling accepted. And to feel connected, I think ultimately. Yeah, accepted, connected. Um, you know, all all those things are part of community. And I didn't have a lot of that growing up, so I found it in many different ways. And I learned to be a chameleon. Mm-hmm. Uh, I could chameleon to all different types of personalities and people. But do you think when you wear a mask, do you feel like any of the connections were meaningful though? No, they absolutely weren't. I mean, there's definitely looking back, those survival skills that helped me get through, um, you know, a pretty dysfunctional um, environment growing up really caused me to um, sink even deeper into a false self. And, and so that would play itself out in my adulthood as well. Mm -hmm. So I never really, knew who my true self was because I wasn't able to express or grow in the ways that children should be able to um, in a healthy environment. Um, So yes, it definitely was a mask. It was uh, none of those relationships um, really were were rich um, and intimate, if you will. Um, So I'm sure that that helped me to, um, and I didn't want to lay roots either and be myself scared that I'd be rejected and turned away if people knew what type of environment I came from or Mm -hmm. knew my socioeconomic class of living, um, you know, eating canned foods as a kid, you know, and and not having very much food. So there's a lot, a lot of things that that happened there to build this really, this false self that I lived out for, for decades after that. You know, something that I loved what you said in that uh, growing up in Santa Cruz article, if I may read it, I love what you said, and I want to know what this means to you. You stated, I realize that we can find refuge even when it's dark. I just start to unravel this bundle that had been handed to me, a bundle of darkness that has been handed to me over the generations. I'm not going to pass on this bundle anymore. What does that mean to you? Yeah, that brings up a lot of a lot of stuff. It's uh, emotional. Um, if... 
I, I have the perspective and I've gotten, I've done, I've done a lot of, a lot of healing work on this and realizing that, um, forgiveness, forgiving the past, forgiving the people who have, um, you know, done harm, forgiving myself is a huge part of, of growing. And what helped me understand that was looking at it in a metaphoric way of the, there's a, there's a, it's almost like if you were standing on top of a mountain and you looked behind you and saw a line miles long, and that was your, your lineage, that's your family, that's your, the generations that go all the way back. And in the very front are your parents and your grandparents, your parents as a, your grandparents as adults and your parents as children. And you see your grandparents handing them this bundle. And we don't know what's in that bundle. But what, what I do know is that what my parents did was the best that they can do with the bundle they were also handed. And so this generational bundle that's been passed along over generations eventually ends up in virtually every child's lap. Um, and that helped me to really get a better understanding that my parents did the best they could with the bundle they were handed. But what they didn't have was the um, awareness, the tools, and the, um, the support systems in place and maybe it wasn't their calling, but definitely at the time to even look at that. But I do. Mm-hmm. I, I have a choice and I know the difference. Um, and I don't want to pass that down to my children, um, even though I'm sure I have in many ways some of that bundle. My hope is that if, if, it, if, it, if indeed it takes three to seven generations to change um, a pattern, I, I, it's got to stop and start with me. And so for me, it's, it's a survival, survival of a spiritual sense that I want to um, find true peace and true joy in this broken world where humans are doing the best they can, um, in my opinion, many times, but there's just so much generational dysfunction that's been passed down and handed to them in that bundle that a lot of people don't know where to start. Even if it wasn't the right way or even if it felt wrong. Right. And I think everybody comes from that. Sometimes people can't identify that. Um, Sometimes it's family secrets. It might be that overachieving family that wants you to go to Stanford or Ivy League. There's so many ways to look at the bundle. And I know the word dysfunction can be hard for people. I identify with that because I don't have any judgment towards my family for that dysfunction that I was raised in. Um, there was also a lot of beauty in there too that I can identify now and not focus on all of that. But yes, this generational bundle is something that when I finally um, was was humbled enough to look at my patterns in my life and how those weren't changing, um, that bundle was something that I realized I needed to start unpacking and looking at. So that was the beginning of my healing journey. I think all of us like all the generations have the ability to look at this bundle. But like you say, maybe they just couldn't, you know, or they, you know, or or they didn't, you know. And they have the tools. Yeah. You know, have the tools to do that. And there's not very many out there. Our culture doesn't really, um, on, a, on, a, on a large scale, does not cultivate those tools. Um, it's more distraction. It's more competition. Uh, what you have of the, the worldly things, the flesh things that 
really at the end of the day have nothing to do with the spirit. So. Exactly. I think we don't in our culture, even though everything looks pretty, it's convenient. We don't really honor the most important thing, like right. how we feel. Right. Do you feel like your mother's bundle was better than your dad's bundle? You know, I used it's it's ironic you say that because I used to always identify with my dad being the issue, but because he was violent and aggressive and that was loud, I didn't notice my mom's bundle of enabling is every bit as destroying. And I took on both. So so I had that that anger in me and that enabling in me and I could you know, switch from victim to persecutor in, in the blink of an eye from the environment I was raised in. Um, so I don't know about comparisons and percentages, but I do believe that a large part of the bundle that I had to unpack was also um, prevalent in my mom's generational dysfunction. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that comes down to alcohol. Um, sometimes it's it skips generations, um, but ultimately that that's a huge part of what we deal with as a society as well is, is alcohol abuse. Um, and that might morph itself in, in many different ways, but that's a big part of it. Did you see that as well in your family? Yeah, absolutely. My grandfather was a big drinker. Um, I mean, he actually bartended at times. Mm-hmm. My grandmother drank a little bit. My mother didn't partake much. My dad was. My dad actually, um, f- further along in life, uh, after I, I got out of, out of high school and stuff, um, that, that reared its head with him. But, you know... At 13, I just started rebelling, and the only thing I had was sports. And so in high school, I still played sports, but then I started to fade in my grades. Mm -hmm. So out of the four years of high school, I only was able to play sports two of those. And the 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 one that rocked me the most, and the one that I really went off kind of off the uh, off the rails with in terms of being rebellious and and being angry was when I was a senior um, at a school. I got in an argument with the teacher. End of the story is that, or the, I was removed from the school. And by being removed from the school, you're not able to play sports at another school for 12 calendar months. Oh, wow. And that doesn't, in my interpretation, if it, it, that really held me down and didn't allow me to express myself. So now that, now I, what was, in my opinion, what was taken away from me was the only thing that kept me hanging on and towing the line. And that was sports. So when that was taken away from me, um, that's when I went into full, full gear, um, rebellion. Mm-hmm. And and it and it reared its head. It reared its head with fast cars and drugs and and relationships that changed every week. Um, a lot of promiscuous activities that eventually led me to, you know, making a mistake when I was twenty years old. That that ended up winding me up in in um, in uh, San Quentin State Prison. Actually, how long were you in prison for? I was in I was in prison for for fourteen months. Um, yeah, yeah, and 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 it was a, it was a um, a time when when our state particularly was very stringent on violent crimes and three strikes. Mm-hmm. And so, um, what ended me up there was a was uh, some anger over a girl I was dating and her ex boyfriend. And and long story short, what I did, um, in my opinion, looking back, didn't call for the type of sentence I got, but so then I, so then I held on to that later, but nonetheless, I got a two year sentence, went to San Quentin state prison for 14 months. And when I got out, um, you know, I said I would never get in trouble with the law again, but what I didn't realize was now I'm harboring even more anger. Mm -hmm. 
I was un, unjust. And you were so young, I was so young, and, and I think it continued when I was trying to get jobs and going back to school, and I finally just gave up on school and said, "Well, I'm not going to get my degree because mm-hmm. I can't get a job anyway with my background." Um, and so I lived that for another another ten years of extreme anger of not getting the opportunity for jobs and positions that I felt that I was. Um, you know, uh, would be able to, to strive in and, and, and add something to, to that environment because I wouldn't even pass the, I wouldn't even pass the initial application because of the background. What was a turning point for you then? The turning point for me, um, was, was quite a bit longer. You know, I went through a lot. Um, I got out of jail, um, went to actually live with my dad, ironically, and there was some healing there for him and I, but then I experienced him, um, after two years, I actually helped my father get sober. Um, I was one of the the conduits to, to help him get sober, and he was sober for a couple of years, and then went back. And then, um, you know, I got I got married, um, had my first son at twenty five. Uh, my ex wife had a son that was already four um, when I met her at twenty one, so she had him at sixteen. Yeah, um, so I had a stepson at twenty one years old uh, when he was four probably way too much for me to take on, but my heart was in the right place. Had my first son at 25, who's now 19. When my oldest son turned three or four is when I got a call one night. Uh, My dad was back living in Texas. He moved back to Texas. And uh, my dad um, got a phone call. My dad had passed away from congestive heart failure um, Mm -hmm. because of his alcohol and other underlying uh, issues with diabetes. How old was he? My dad was 47 years old. Super young then. Super young, super young. And um, so this would be the second experience that I had um, of losing a loved one. And once again, I chose to not process that because the the process of processing of grief that I saw with my mom and my grandfather laid a foundation that that's not a safe place and mm-hmm. that's scary and that hurts. So I just, I didn't, I didn't process that or deal with that either. Um, so I just kind of went along being a dad and trying to be a good father. And some of the things that I grew up in re- reared its head also in my relationship with my ex-wife, um, not on the physical level, but definitely um, in the controlling way. Mm-hmm. You know, I lived in an environment that was so controlling and I was in control of nothing that as I got older and I had a voice and I was grown and strong, I thought as a, as a young man, now I have a voice now I can't now I can control things and I can control things so I don't get hurt. Um, and so I'm not abandoned. And the very reasons for control weren't because I was really wanting to control others. I was really wanting to protect myself from being hurt again or being abandoned. Um, and I wanted to be accepted. So I would try to control and that would rear its head in my marriage. Um, um, and then after my second, child was born. Uh, about two years after that, my ex-wife decided that it was just too much for her. She decided to leave. Um, so at that time, I was about 35 years old, um, and I felt a lot of shame. Um, I would do anything to keep my family together because I came from so much brokenness, not realizing that keeping the family together was actually hurting everybody inherently. And so there was a lot of shame um, as a father that I let down my wife and I let down my children. Um, and then this abandonment and rejection stuff started kind of rearing its head again. And again, I, I didn't process that grief. 
Um, it's a, this is really a story of, of unresolved grief at the end of the day. And, and that unresolved grief really drove me to um, act out again. And that's with drinking, fast cars, just whatever I can do to numb out, to not deal with the inevitable, which was me. Did any of that stuff ever make you feel really happy, though? Yeah, I did, but it was always temporary. <laughs> you know, I mean, you know, anything of this world I realize now is just temporary. And nothing really will, will fulfill that, that emptiness or that void um, for very long. And it can morph itself in a million different ways, mm-hmm. um, which is a keen way of distraction from, um, from a, a darkness, uh, an evil, if you will, to keep me distracted, keep us distracted enough that um, I could not identify where the issue was and, and just blame it on uh, exterior things. Like it was this relationship. It was that job. It was mm-hmm. that boss. Um, but it would just continue. Yeah. I think the truth is really hard to look at sometimes. You it's know? difficult. It's yeah. painful. It's painful. It's very painful. And so it's, it's the stuffing. And so I'm continuing to live in my false self, not even knowing what my, who my true self was intended to be. Um, and so I was about, I was 35. And then when I got to, I was about 37 years old, I got a phone call that my mother, um, had cancer. And so it was like literally one after another. Then. Yeah. I mean, it seems like it, there's these years separated, but, uh, my mother was, um, given, um, six months to live. She got colon cancer and she passed away, um, I think what seven years ago, um, uh, at fifty six years old. So now, now, now I've got uh, the most important person that I had had in my life. You know, it was kind of like even I had mom, I had grandma and grandpa there, but those first five or six years were just me and mom. Mm-hmm. It was kind of like mom and I against the world, you know. And she was awesome. I have so many amazing memories um, of those times when when there wasn't the violence. Um, and, and the really, you know, very unhealthy boundary, um, boundaries in, in an environment. So, so that, that hit me really hard, but again, I don't know how to process grief. Um, I don't realize that grief needs to be processed. I went to the go-to and that's to stuff it. And so I stuffed that, um, didn't deal with that. And then about a year and a half later, um, my grandmother, who was, an, was, that was her only daughter, they lived together. She lost her only daughter. Um, got the phone call that my grandmother has, uh, has uh, we need to go to the doctor. And it was revealed that she had lung cancer and that she um, had stage four lung cancer. And um, what I didn't mention earlier um, is that I have a brother 10 years younger and a sister 14 years younger that wasn't from my father. So in many ways, they're, in many ways, I helped raise them in some sense. I was babysitting them, mm-hmm. you know, from the time I was 10 years old till I was older. They're so much younger. So I have a, a younger brother by 10 years, a younger sister by 14 years. The last living elder in my house and in my life, because um, my dad's side all passed away as well, my grandmother, who ultimately was the rock of our family, she was the rock behind everything. She held everything together, always had the safe place to go was very loving, very compassionate, would do anything 
for her fellow human. And that's when I finally was rocked to the core and all of the unresolved grief from loss of childhood, loss of self, loss of grandfather, dad, family, mom, all came crashing down. And that's um, kind of a lot to, you know, take once, in before once, you all at once. let it all. I mean, that's yeah. like a lot, but I had to, I had to, I didn't have to, but I was, yeah. I was forced. I was, it was a blessing to be, to be in some sense forced to have to look at this and be there for my grandmother. Cause it was going to, is me. I, I was going to be there to support her and mm-hmm. take her to chemo and I couldn't hide anymore. Was your mother gone by then? My mother passed away mm-hmm. a year and a half before that. And then my okay. grandmother got cancer. So mm-hmm. it was me. I was the one to, as the oldest. Um, yeah. And, and how are you there for someone if you, you know, you don't have yeah. it together for yeah. yourself. I think. Yeah. It was, it was difficult. Uh, but when my grandmother got sick, I finally dropped to my knees humbled to a level that I didn't even know was possible that the realization was I don't want to live in chains any longer. I saw too many people in my life live that way. And now it was about survival, um, but a different type of survival. It was a survival of my spirit. And, and knowing that life is so, so precious and we're not guaranteed another day, um, it really hit me. And that's when I started to um, really make a transition. I had already started the, the, the nonprofit Flag Football League about three years prior to that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and if we want to go back to that, we can on what, why I started that. But, you know, seven years ago was, was a big shake in my life. Um, that I really had to start looking at that generational bundle that we talked about um, and give my life to something greater than myself. And that's that's when I personally gave my life to a higher power who I choose, I choose to call God. Um, Do you feel like flag football also helped you? Yeah. You know, looking back when I started the league 10 years ago, the way that it, it came about was my sons were playing in a league in San Jose. And I wasn't really, I didn't really feel good about the way things were being ran there. And of course, you know, I could have been wrong at the time, but I just didn't feel compassion. I didn't feel community. Um, I didn't feel the things that made sports so great. And so I pulled my children from the league, not feeling good about it. And then I went to Google, you know, another league that I could put them in, not realizing at the time that this particular organization was the only one. Unlike baseball and and soccer and and some of your other mainstream sports, flag football was really in its infancy. At that time, that league was open for about eight years. He had a complete monopoly on the whole San San Jose area. And so that lit a, um, you know, that that really lit a fire in my soul. And it it really weighed on my heart um, that parents should have an opportunity to choose what's best for theirs, for their children. And so it drove me to, and inevitably to start my own nonprofit and start my own league. So out of out of that 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 hunger in my heart and that fire in my soul, it, it really it really catapulted me and inspired me to um, present something to the community that was different, that I think would be more attractive, that would be more um, encouraging to our youth, and that meant so much to me. Um, number one, I'm a dad, and number two that childhood I went through 
looking back how much sports meant to me, how much those mentors meant to me. And, and so I wanted to be able to, um, uh, cultivate an environment that that would be um, something that others might be able to get from it as well. Yeah, and so Coach that, Robert, that, that was it. Yeah, yeah, I think you did <laughs> because I think whether or not you believe in a higher power or not, you can't deny what you see when children are playing on the field. You know, and I, you know it's fly with it's with flag football, but I think it's with all youth sports. You can't deny the feelings that emanate when the child is playing on the field with other children or even with the family that surround them. I think, you know, and just to be really honest with you, flag football has brought such joy to our lives, mm. my family. And even during the one of the most vulnerable, most vulnerable times for us during the pandemic, where we were all feeling badly, you know, like parents and kids, kids having no school, you know. It's brought such stability. You running mm. the camps during mm. the summer, being out again, like running on your feet, feeling like a person again, it's helped all of us, actually. And I think one of the things that made me stop and think was when I was picking up, uh, you know, my child from your from your camp. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You guys were playing a scrimmage, I guess, went a little bit over an hour. And one of the kids was, and yeah, I think you had stated, oh, it's, you know, it's game's over, time's over. And one of the kids was like, oh, but that felt like 10 minutes. And he mm -hmm. was saying, you know, when you have fun, it feels like 10 minutes for all of us, you know? And it was so beautiful. One, you can't deny the joy that emanates from the field. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's, it's amazing how much we all as humans get out of being a part of community in a safe environment, um, an environment that's encouraging um, an environment that's compassionate and loving where the youth, you know, our youth, um, such an important part of our community is our youth. And, you know, my, my goal, um, in starting the league wasn't even completely clear at the time, but it's become so much clearer now that empowering our youth and elevating our youth to cultivate life experiences and life lessons through sports is invaluable. And I really, it really means a lot to cultivate an environment that allows self-expression and teamwork. Um, the kids are amazing. And there, there are times, Michelle, actually, where I've questioned myself saying, I feel a little selfish because I'm getting so much out of this, you know? And, um, I think that's courage, actually. I get actually. so much out of watching those children and being with them and working with them and working with the coaches and supporting the coaches. And this is a this is this particular um, league, I believe, is an inclusive league. People from all walks of life have the ability to participate in this league um, from cost to if there's support needed financially to the time commitment, it really allows it to be open for all. And we really want to cultivate that teamwork, that growth, and really get away from what I've seen in a lot of sports. Another reason why this, this particular endeavor means so much, you know, my oldest son and my youngest son played competitive sports at a very high level. And I, I, was, I was at times one of those dads 
who believe that their kid might be a professional athlete. And that's okay. We don't want to, <laughs> we don't want to squash dreams, but there's so much more that we get out of sports than that. And I've been humbled in many ways as a father um, to realize that winning at all cost mentality is detrimental and not good for the children. So we really want to cultivate an environment where it's not that. And I believe that the environment um, at, at NorCal Flag really um, encompasses a growth, self-expression, community-type atmosphere and not what we're seeing in our culture of comparison and win-at-all-cost mentality. And I think that's very, very important. And it's also countercultural to what we've been taught and what we're being subliminally brainwashed with, in a sense. Uh, what school is your kid going to go to? Are they going to get a scholarship? You know, those things are nice. Uh, but ultimately, that's taking us further and further away from community and being more of an achieving society rather than a community. Yeah. And and whatever you believe in, 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 in a greater power, in what, whatever it is out there spiritually that, that you you find that you relate to, nobody can deny that our species or humans or however you look at it are built to be in community. And more than ever, we need that. More than ever, because we're at a, a, at a breaking point, in my opinion, where it's, it's it from Facebook to social media, it's everything's what I have, what I achieve, what title I have at work. And, and I want everyone to see it. just a surface, just a surface, you know? Just a surface. Yeah. yeah, and the surface can easily be washed away. Right, right. And I love, the, you know, a couple of things that you said, you know. I agree about the winning because isn't the truth in life, most of us don't win at all or, you know, most of the times we don't win. But yeah. even just like the process of trying, I think there are many mm -hmm. more important lessons, mm -hmm. actually, when you don't win. Sure, I think it's really fun when you win. But the lessons that you learn, even to like deal with those feelings and those feelings as a whole team, there are so many lessons to be learned, Absolutely. I think, when you don't win. Or even how the parent feels, mm -hmm. you know, or towards each other. Right. And I love what you said about community. That's absolutely true. Like people that you may not no normally associate with your, in That's your right. circle of, you know, I don't know, friends or, mm -hmm. you know, you associate with people that you normally don't, may not talk with, but it's amazing, mm -hmm. you know, to get to know each other, right. to accept. Right. Yeah, sports brings... And to understand, I think. Right. Sports brings people from all different types, walks of life, socioeconomic, you know, levels, whatever, together. And while true community is intimacy, we can find intimacy through common, um, common likes, Children, for instance, they may start off just meeting each other through flag football, a sport they like, but they may end up over time cultivating these amazing relationships. And And love is what it's all about. And friendship is probably the strongest love, in my opinion, of all. It's, it's something that really can't be broken. It's something that when your friend, you know, achieves something, you're so happy for them. Or when they fall, you feel their pain. You know, and so friendships are built through sports and people are brought together from all different types of, of walks of life. And it's it's amazing to see that. It's a joy to be able to um, just be involved in something like that. And ultimately for me, I'm just a conduit. 
you know, for me, I look at myself as a conduit to something much greater. But without you, plan. this would not have been possible, you know? Even the idea of cheering for each other, right. that's a powerful emotion, you know? Right. May I ask you, do you love coaching flag football? I, I, I love coaching. I just love being around children. There's a selfish part of me who just wants to be around the kids. There's so much awe. Uh, I, I actually yearn to um, look at life at times with childlike wonder and, and with the big eyes and, and the joy um, that I see. Children in, don't hide, don't you think? They don't hide. They're just themselves. They're not, they're not living in their false self. They really are. They're, I look back to when I see these children, I realize that you know there was a time where I was experiencing my true self as a kid. But unfortunately, at that time, and fortunately now, because it's all woven me into who I am, that was taken away. And now I value that true self so much and that expression. And I, I absolutely agree. Watching those children out there um, be able to express themselves and be themselves and just have that outlet, particularly right now, more than ever, um, with with kind of the uh, you know the forecast, if you will, of what's going on in, in our in our human existence. Um, it, it seems to be even more um, important than I even imagined, bigger than I ever thought. I absolutely agree with you. You know, I think like even you could be cooped up at home right now, and many kids are, quite frankly, right, with remote school in California. Or you could be outside on a really green field, feeling the sun, feeling the ocean breeze. Oh my gosh, you know, like, isn't that the therapy that we all need? Yeah. I think I'm noticing a much deeper gratitude for life and some of the things that distraction, which I believe is the biggest enemy, keeps us from noticing. When you're in that achieving kind of mentality and not community, and we're allowing as a society and myself at times, distraction to take hold, it's hard to notice those small things, the, the, the beauty in, in, in all of this that's around us. And I really believe that um, a lot of really amazing things are going to come from this time. I, I, I believe and I have hope that people will really see what matters in life. And, and my hope is, is that people will stop moving at the phonetic pace they're moving at where their souls just can't catch up with their bodies, and I get, agree. And, I think that's aligned. a huge problem. Yeah, it really, it really is. Um, there's so many distractions, and you know when we've gone from an attention span of 12 seconds as humans mm-hmm. in the year 2000 of the digital, you know, revolution, if you will, we're already down to eight seconds in 20 years to where we're supposed to have these. We're being told, if you will, that we have these tools. These phones, these all these amazing tools that are supposed to make us more efficient, are actually making us more distracted, and that's that's separating us from community. And I I believe that this halt, where it doesn't matter what your socioeconomic class is, everybody's been rattled by this. And I really believe that that I have hope that people will start looking at what really matters and get back to community because that's what matters. And that everyone will do it in their own time. Some people are in different positions, comfort zones, when they come out, how they do that. But in time, it, 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 will, it will, I believe, work to our benefit um, as, as, as the human condition. It's time to heal. 
I absolutely agree with you. And, you know, I think sometimes like those things are really fun, you know, like your phones and everything, you know. But however, the truth is distraction does not, you know, create anything meaningful in your life. No, no. But it's it's hard to understand that when it's so scary to look at that bundle. And, you know, when I found ACA, uh, a 12-step program that I believe is integral and really deals with those and what is ACA? ACA is um, termed adult children of alcohol and dysfunction. And it derived from AA, but it's much bigger than that. It's about understanding what healthy boundaries are. It's about shaking off the the rust of the false self and try, and finding who your true self is. And, um, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a true healing program that's allowed me to really go from, from hurting to healing to now helping. And ultimately, community is about helping each other loving each other. But when we are numbing out and looking for distractions and not dealing with our own hurts, then we're never going to be able to be supportive for others. And when you're in an airplane and you're getting the tutorial on if this plane goes down, they specifically tell you to put the oxygen mask on yourself before you even put it on your own children. And that seems so countercultural. We want to help others. We want to enable and support them. That. But we really can't support anybody if they're not willing to be supported. And we can't support anybody if we're not putting the oxygen mask on ourselves. Yeah. So because- it's time it's time for people to really look at their hurts. And, and, and don't get me wrong, you know, it's been quite a journey for me. When I initially had to start looking at this, it literally felt like jumping out of an airplane without a parachute. It was that scary to start looking at this stuff. But it was a fight for my spiritual life and for modeling something to my children and on a much grander scale that this league started out with just trying to find my sons a league. Mm-hmm. And now it's morphed into this amazing audience of thousands of people a year that how I show up is being looked at and how I support the coaches that trickle down to those children that those children are looking at with these eyes of awe, just looking at these adults. You know, they're like grasshoppers or these little kids. They're looking up at these adults. I it's think, much bigger than that. It's I so think, much bigger than sports. Yeah. I think, you know, your flag football league is kind of like your ministry of what youth sports can offer into all of our lives, into our children's lives, into the parents' lives, you know? Right. Like, like you say, like, it's such a busy world. But to take that hour or two and be in the moment, be outside, watch your child, you know, cheer for your child as your child is running and free mm-hmm. and there's no limitations of what's possible. Oh, it's beautiful. That's, that's your ministry. It's beautiful. Um, I, I definitely believe that I, I've been asked, you know, People ask this randomly. What do you regret in the past? If you had a time machine, what would you go back and change? My answer is nothing. I've had a lot of loss, but everybody has a testimony. Everybody has a story. What are you, what are we doing with that? What are we individually doing with that testimony and that story, that, that, that struggle at times to model and support others in community? And so... I wouldn't go back and change everything, anything. I'm grateful for every mistake, shortcoming, loss, because it's woven me into who I am today. And while this is an amazing opportunity to be in front of a large audience and have this community and be a part of that, really, it's just a testimony to what can happen when you... Don't ignore it. When you don't ignore it. And for me, 
when I allow God or a higher power to write the story and stop trying to steal the pen. Because ultimately, the only thing I'm in control of is my thoughts. And the more that I understand that, the freer I become. The peace and the joy that I now experience are things that can't be taken from me. Because happiness comes and goes. Happiness is a feeling. Some people think love's a feeling, but it's a command. It, happiness, I, oh, they look happy when I was growing up. I want to be like them. I want to have what they have. Happiness is surface level and comes and goes. Joy is soul reverberating. And peace is soul reverberating. And those cannot be taken from you. I absolutely agree with they you. They can't be taken from you. And if I can get a, see a little bit of that you know, every week with these kids and their awe and their childlike wonder, it's a reminder that we can have that too. Because our inner child needs to be loved. And that self-critical parent that some of us have because of environments we were raised in and those survival skills that got us through our childhood, I'm thankful for those. But those survival skills, they don't serve me anymore. They don't serve me anymore because that wants that wants to keep me trying to control things to not be hurt. Mm-hmm. Live in the box, maybe. Living in a box. And yeah. so that, that hurting to healing to supporting or helping, if you will, comes from lessening the control. Mm-hmm. And when you do that, you find so much joy and so much peace and you notice the the victories out there. And that goes back to the to the to the winning mentality. You know, we, we're taught a lot of things in our culture. Do, don't, win, loss. Those, those, there's I, I don't find anything in those words that 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 really speak to me. To me, don't is undo. To me, Winning is victories, and we can find small victories in everything. It's not the score at the end of the game. It's the little things. And what I try to emphasize with the coaches and with the children that I'm working with is, yeah, there needs to be structure. Um, You know, we need to pay attention, give it our all, encourage each other. If we're doing those three things, we're going to find the small victories in the game of sports and in the game of life. And at the end of the day, if you want to use the word winning. We're all going to be winners if we're doing that. To me, it's about the small victories. I don't want, again, there, to me, there's a negative connotation in society with winning and losing, do and don't. We're told so much when we're kids, do this, don't do that. You're rewarded for doing good, you know, as opposed to finding those small victories in the day, in the moment. And I think when we do that, it'll also bring us to be a little bit more present where our souls and our bodies are more aligned and we can see the amazing, um, story of life that's being written right in front of us that we can miss when we're distracted. So it's it's beautiful. And my hope is that through this organization and in my life that I can be a light and this organization can be a light, that we all come together as a community and we all can see those small victories every day and in every moment. And maybe that'll trickle into our, our lives outside of sports. So sports is one of many yeah. vehicles and conduits um, but it, it's it's the one that that I was chosen to represent and the one that speaks to me the dearest because of my growing up and how much sports meant to me. But it's a small part of the big scheme. I'm just I'm just glad and humbled enough to be a part of that small. And Robert, I think you're really doing it. I think all of us are feeling the light that you are in your life right now. And it's helped all of us. Mm-hmm. I would like to ask you one more question yeah. now. You said that there was a point in your life where you knew that, you know, you when you when I guess your life was changing, when you decided to change your life, that you felt like you were jumping off the plane. What allowed you to jump then? 
what was it in your life that allowed you to just it's it's the jump? it's the it's the courage and love that I got from a power greater than myself. I in my life, and I think many at times, and again, I try to speak in the eye. I really try not to use we or you or us. So I apologize if it's coming across that way. But for me, I realized that I was putting unrealistic expectations on humans. If humans inevitably fall short, that's what we do. We're not perfect. That's the reality. And they pass along this generational bundle. Then I had to realize that putting my faith in humans to fulfill a void that I didn't have in myself was unrealistic. So the, the short answer is I gave myself to a power greater than myself that loves me, accepts me, will never leave me, will never wander, was relentlessly pursuing me this whole time right by my side and I never even knew it, never left me. There wasn't conditional love. It's been unconditional. And no matter what I do, I'm loved. And that gives me courage. And that courage allowed me and has allowed me to continue to face those difficult things in my life. And what I realize now is that looking back, all those difficult situations, those losses, those challenges, those places and times where I was stretched to the max and pushed over the edge are inevitably the very places where I grew. I don't want to live a monotonous life just going with the flow. You know, I want I want to be stretched. And if I'm not being stretched, if I don't feel a little uncomfortable, then I know that I'm not growing. And that's just where I'm at now to where in the past I would be scared to try things. I would, I would hold myself down. I would not believe in myself. I believe now that I can do anything, anything that I'm called to do. And that courage allowed me to just jump out of that plane and realize that I actually do have a, I do have a parachute. I do have a parachute. The parachute called faith. The parachute called faith. And it's, (laughs) it's something that I know many of us as humans try to put into words, but there are some things that are much bigger than words. And by trying to explain that faith, that hope, that higher power, who I choose to call God, we'll be putting that in a box. And that doesn't serve it any justice at all. And like, I think even if you don't believe in a higher power, just live it. Live it. Do the things in your life that bring you joy. That's right. You know, and that's what this league and this like life is all sports, about. You know? Absolutely. The it's about those... bringing everybody together. Acceptance, yeah. not judgment. The very beliefs that I believe in spiritually was an invitation of acceptance and love. Nothing other than that. And humans, in many ways, have made a building called a church or these other things that we quantify and and judgment. And, and, and that's it's human. Spiritually, that's not it. And some of my best friends and mentors have completely different views than me when it comes to a higher power. <laughs> I mean, my best friend's a, a Buddhist, a shamanist, he's a beautiful person. None of that. It's all about love. Everything boils down to love. And if you look at every spiritual practice, they're all love. And love I is think so. gentleness, kindness, patience. It's like we're all around a circle trying to get into the center if we're aware of it. <laughs> it really is. Yeah. And it's nice to be able to, again, be a conduit and have this audience where people from all different walks are coming together. Like I said, socioeconomic, spiritual practices. Um, I don't personally use the word religion. I think there's a negative connotation with that. It seems a little legalistic and structured, <laughs> which I'm a, as you've heard, I've been known to be a little bit of a rule breaker hopefully in the right ways now, in the spiritual ways. So I love that we can all come together in sport and get to know each other uh, 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 
through something that connects the children, which I think is very humbling when you might start to get to know someone's personal beliefs or their background, their walk. We're all human. Let's just love each other. And and the kids are an amazing way to be able to bridge that and bring us together. And instead of sitting on one shore to the other and trying to build this bridge, when we're with the kids and we're doing real service work, we're getting in the water to build that bridge. You can't build it shore to shore. You've got to get in the water. Well, thank you so much, Robert. I think you're such a light for the community. And I think it really takes courage to be who you are. And I can see that in you. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to Lost or Found. Don't forget to subscribe and follow us, Lost or Found Podcast, on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. For more information, visit our website, drlostorfound.com.